May I please have your full and undivided attention? It is time for the Paranormal Rundown. Hello, this is Avalon Lee and Dankworth Smythe. I am filling in for my father, Cedric Dankworth Smythe, who, unfortunately, has a serious case of acute COVID throat and simply cannot fulfill his announcing duties this episode. So, welcome to episode 13 of the Paranormal Rundown. In this episode, we welcome as our guest, Canon Father Bob Wills who has been Father Birdsong's ecclesiastical mentor and friend for many years. He, Father Mike, JJ, Dave and Vic discuss, among other things, why being in the actual presence of God is likely to make for a very bad day indeed, JJ's unique career goals as a child, the limits and challenges that come with being a genius, and the mysterious Ted Zerioses, the man who could take pictures with his mind, even while drunk, and after enduring a complete body cavity search. As always, it will be a paranormal podcast like no other. All right, well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Paranormal Rundown. Tonight, we have the one and the only, the all-famous Vic Hermanson from Trailer Trash Terrace, and we have Mr. J.J. Johnson from Southern Demonology, and we have the one, the only, the king, the ambassador of the Dork Crew, Mr. David Griffith, and tonight we are... Uh, we have a special guest with us, the Reverend Canon Father Doctor Theologian Robert Wills with us. So I think there's enough titles, but we invite you to sit back, listen, laugh, maybe take some things serious and maybe say, these guys are crazy. But at any rate, we would love to hear any feedback that you have, but sit back for the next few moments and let's dive into every kind of subject that Annabelle or Avalon or Boudreaux or whoever wants us to talk about. Thank you very much. Father Mike, did I make you angry? Because I'm the only one who didn't get a title, and I am rather offended at that. Oh. <laughs> uh, and he's uh, got JJ, the shortest you've, you've name, too. You've <laughs> you always told us you're both ancient and evil. So maybe he was doing you a favor. <laughs> um, very true. Could have been. He could have been like, well, the only thing I can think of are just bad things. So I'll just. <laughs> we'll we'll come up with something next time, JJ. Yes, we will. I am joking. I don't care. <laughs> All right. Well, so speaking of listener feedback or feedback from from folks out there, um, we have a TikTok account now. If you haven't seen it, it's uh, Paranormal Rundown. And we actually had someone provide a feedback on one of our videos. And this was a video, uh, we put out these just short one minute long clips of our conversations. And this particular one was about, you know, where does, where do you draw the line? If God was going to provide assistance with humanity and keep bad things from happening where do you draw the line is it at scraping your knee is it at nuclear war is it somewhere in between that god would prevent from happening and so 
We have uh, the listener, Key to the Gun, and he commented that he's not an atheist, but his question would be, why does God judge us after we have died, and if the cost of sin is death? Now, I I had um, made a comment back, and I said that each of us on the rundown have a different perspective on how and why God will, will judge, but that it's his right as a creator, and told him to check out our full discussion, and his follow-up to that was, and if we just die, doesn't that mean we served our time before judgment? I mean, why punish someone before their trial? That doesn't seem right. So I want to throw that out there for anybody if you have any thoughts on it, and uh, maybe that can just be a little mini discussion before we get going. I say let's let Father Bob jump in on that one. Well, why do you think that life is a punishment that's apparently what this is suggesting that life is the punishment um why would we think life is a punishment just because bad things happen to us uh bad things happen to just about everyone in life life is not always what we want it to be but i don't think we can say it's a punishment per se if that's the case, then every then God would be God would be punishing everybody in the world all the time. I mean that that's the logical conclusion of that thinking. Well, and I think in that discussion we did talk about you know some people would would maybe even consider life punishment with some of the things they have to go through. I mean, life could be really really hard. It could be really painful. Um, you know and you know, my perspective on that and what we talked about is that that's, you know, we're learning something out of that. It's sort of forging us into a, a stronger person, a, you know, strengthening our faith, hopefully, as we go. But everybody has challenges that they have to go through. What if life, though, what if life, though, is or depends upon the choices we make and what if the life we have is based on those choices which may be good for us or bad for us. And also then you have outside influences like the demonic or the angelic that interplays with our lives at times. And then I think a third thing would be the genetic disposition of our life. You know, what, what about our genetics, our background where we come from not just where we come from but where do our ancestors come from because there's some sort of ancestral thing involved i think in life mm -hmm. could be like a, even a, an ancestral curse or yeah you know exactly. some judgment past yeah right right i mean i mean well we know for example that in the dna that we have there are certain things that make us predisposed to depression or to manic behavior or to certain illnesses or to immunity for those illnesses, that kind of thing. But also, we have to remember that 
there is some sort of ancestral memory in our DNA also that's passed on from our ancestors, you know, and we don't even understand how that works. I mean, we're talking about the paranormal. That would be probably one of the root issues in discussing the paranormal would be how how much does this generational memory how much do we get from our ancestors that actually affects the way we think the way we behave very interesting things that we do for for example i just give one short example it's a great example though that's a perfect rundown topic right because they are really doing um I don't know if I don't know if they're doing research or but I've heard a lot more about this that they're thinking that that may be much more significant than we think of right you you think of people passing down certain traits because of genetics because of um you know natural selection but they're talking like even certain severe experiences that you may have may somehow be passed down through the dna and aversion to that type of experience again which doesn't make any sense at all when you think about just natural selection well script scripturally uh man y'all are y'all are fulfilling the prophet jeremiah right now uh i think it's jeremiah but the the scripture says that the fathers have eaten sour grapes therefore the children's teeth are set on edge and what that is denoting to is about the past experiences or the past actions of the generations that came before those that were present and how it was the sins of the fathers that have been cast down from generation to generation to generation now the good news to that was that the promise was coming that people couldn't say that anymore because there has to come a point in time in each each individual's life where that curse is broken or they say okay it ends with me i'm making a change i'm living my life for god but uh but but back to the original old proverb it's about the fathers have eaten sour grapes. Yeah. That is, that's 100% totally correct. So that is portrayed as a curse? The fact that the children's teeth are on edge because of the fathers eating the sour grapes? Yeah. Interesting. Yes, that is a curse. It says, it says excuse me, Josh just corrected me. It's in what, Ezekiel? That you that you use among you this parable, a proverb in the land of Israel, saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the teeth of the children are set on edge. So that's uh, that's no, that's that's very good. I heard a great uh, Roman Catholic priest just smash uh, the church uh, about two years ago and and it was phenomenal I'm, I'm, I'm gonna find it and send it out to you guys but father bob's correct i mean every i mean it kind of reminds me of being like in the 10th grade again with physics uh for every action there's a equal and opposite what reaction reaction so if 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 david set something forward in his lifetime He's going to affect his son. And if his son walks in those same shoes, 
then it's going to keep going on and on and on and on and on until someone somewhere down the line breaks it. Now, as far as God judging, you know, there, there comes a time to where we have to quit using that old proverb and make a decision for ourselves and realize that we have choices. And uh, But, however, all at the same time, we have an adversary. And what I would tell this gentleman, if it came to a point of me sitting with him, is, is but you have an advocate. And I would tell him the story of Joshua the high priest standing before God, standing before the throne of judgment, just like you're talking about, with the adversary there to condemn him. And and then Christ being foreshadowed by the strong angel at that time, saying, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Okay? We all have that same one enemy that's going to make us doubt ourselves. It's going to make us feel guilty. It's going to make us ask, well, why is God judging me on this? And what, I mean, we're all going to be judged, the just and the unjust. Well, and I How, think that's part of the confusion in yeah. his question is that the the life we live and the trials and the, the, the tribulations we go through in our life, that's not God's judgment. Those are challenges no. in our life. What God's judgment exactly. is, is how we handle ourselves through those things after we exactly exactly so the judgment's not now the judgment is the day we say goodbye it is what is the sins of the father the scripture says are passed on to the third and fourth generation and i think this not only includes what we call sin or bad behavior but i think it includes both the blessings the curses the the way people think the way people behave the psychological there are things that are passed on to at least two or three, maybe four generations. Um, even like you said, there's studies that are ongoing about this. And I can see in my own family, for example, I've done our genealogies and all. I could see where things are passed on down to three or four generations. And it's sometimes it's good things and sometimes it's bad things. Sometimes it's the way people think Sometimes it's their intellect or their understanding. For example, I, I have a grandfather that lived to be 90, uh, 98 years old. He read, he, when he was in his 90s, he was still going to the library every week and getting a bag of books and coming back and reading them. He'd read a book a day. <laughs> and in my life, I've been a little bit that way. I, I read all the time. I, I've always been that way. I think I got that from my grandfather. I don't think it was because I spent a lot of time with my grandfather or that I think it was passed on genetically in some way. And we don't even understand how this kind of thing happens. That's just one example. But I think a lot of people that go through bad experiences in life, it's because of what has been handed down to them and then the choices they make based upon what they have to work with and you know we're responsible ultimately for our own behaviors or it could all just be random craziness <laughs> well there's that too we won't know I, <laughs> for sure I mean, until the end <laughs> well, 
I'd like to chime in just a little bit. But, I mean, isn't the verse, you know, it is a sign to man once to die and then the judgment? Or something along those lines? Yes. <clears throat> and Christ even, he, and Christ even repeats that in several different ways throughout all the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, uh, I mean, everybody's been correct in everything that they've said so far. I mean, life is a journey. The judgment doesn't come till the journey is done. When the race is finished, then the winner is declared. And that's that's when Christ will separate, as he says, the the sheep from the goats and uh, the ones that did well, finished well. But those that finished well will hear the words, what? well done, my good and faithful servant. Correct. And in the, the ones that do not finish well because of their own actions, unfortunately, some are going to hear, I don't know you. And <clears throat> there, there's, there's no, there is no easy way to put those words. There's no easy way to pet somebody. There's no easy way to make someone feel good about their own misactions. And uh, I don't know you. So un- unfortunately, that is that's why the scripture does tell us that the wages of sin is death. And see, the death is just not the physical death. The death is eternal separation from God. I mean, right. we, I mean, and think that's about the, it. That was the second part of his question, right? Yeah. Is, are, why is the wages? Why is yeah. Death? Why is yeah. wages of sin? And, death? and see, but see, the opposite of that, and God even gives us the answer from Genesis to Revelation: choose life. And there's one way to choose life. And so there's, that's just the way I see it. Well, I mean, there is, you know, the additional aspect of essentially infinite mercy in that with repentance and confession and with genuine effort to change the way that you've lived in the past, sins can be be released. Exactly. That's that's what the sacraments of the church are for. Right. Here's a big problem, though, with that. and and that I run into with people in their lives, a lot of people don't finish well. That that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, people may live a life that's more or less on an even keel, but a lot of times they just don't finish well because we are motivated by certain things, and one of those things that we're motivated by is the desire for power or gain, or sure. sometimes people call it greed or gluttony as they as they say in the scripture you know we're motivated by a lot of things that promote ourselves Mm -hmm. and the more we promote ourselves the less well we finish father birdsong is always talking about being allowing oneself to be vulnerable you use it a lot (laughs) he does (laughs) use that a lot so i'm going to tell you something about myself that probably will sound psychologically wrong Okay, but I find myself wanting to be judged by God. And here's the reason. Uh, Much of my life has been a matter of doing the very best I know how to do as, as a flawed human and still being judged very negatively by those people who are judging me. This is probably a common, this is probably a common event. And over time, one begins to doubt oneself because of this. 
you're getting, you'll say things to yourself like, well, man, maybe even all that effort doesn't really even matter. But if a human says it doesn't matter, if a human says you failed, that's just another human. So that's kind of the final arbiter. <laughs> if God, you know, if God says, yes, you failed, then I can stop worrying about it. I know I have failed. If, and of course, that would be, I, I don't know if human psychology exists after death, but I would like to stop worrying about failing. You know what, Vic? And, uh, there's 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 two things uh, about what you just said. First and foremost, I kind of admire the fact that you said you want to be judged because that shows someone with a heart that really cares. They want to know that they're doing well. They want to know that they're not failing God. And going back to Joshua, the high priest, one of the words uh, that the strong angel pro proclaimed over him. This is one that has been snatched. This is a brand that has been snatched from the fire. So first and foremost, I would say that to you tonight. You've been a brand that's been snatched from the fire. And to even say the words, yeah, I, I, I want to be judged, says a lot about your heart, first and foremost. But secondly, secondly, you mentioned, you know, we do the best we can. Um, I remember coming back from Fairhope, Alabama after an exorcism, mm -hmm. and I stopped in Selma uh, at our Archdiocese uh, Church there to spend some time with Archbishop Chuck Jones and to get ministry after that whole exorcism deal. And uh, he said, you know what, Mike? He said, I read a while back the Gospels again. And he said, something really struck me. And he said, I want to tell you something about yourself. I said, okay. And uh, he said, do you remember when Christ said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? I said, yes, sir. He said, have we ever thought about what that really means? And I just looked at him kind of inwardly like he was crazy because I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, he said, you know what? What really Christ was saying was God have mercy on them because they're doing the best that they can with what they know. And I think that is a word that we all need to take in. And if we, if we, if we can understand that, even in our, you know, he's from Alabama, so he's from the South too, so I can pick on us Southern folks for a minute. We're doing the best we can. Or either we're not. Yep. And if we're doing, if we're, if we're doing everything that we can to love God and our neighbor, we're going to finish well. Well, I think that was a good... That was a that good was discussion, opening. Starter. Yes, a, it was. That was a very good opening discussion. So for anybody out there, send us your questions, feedback at paranormalrundown.com, or put it on some of our videos on TikTok, YouTube, Rumble, wherever, and uh, we'll see about addressing them on the show. We will indeed.
All right. Back to you, Vic. Who would like to have some random topics? I do. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. Okay, I have six what I believe to be quite good random topics. We've had some really good roles lately. We have. Topic one, the Catholic concept of limbo. Topic two, the African vanishing penis syndrome. The what? <laughs> <laughs> what in the immortal? <laughs> Top, it's a topic. <laughs> JJ knows exactly what we're talking about. He's not even laughing. Just, <laughs> Josh, Josh, Josh said, talk about a sex change. <laughs> JJ's over there thinking, well, I knew we were going to get to it sooner or later. But <laughs> Hello, this is Avalon Lee and Dankworth Smythe. The actual name of the African vanishing penis syndrome, which actually occurs all over the world, is Koro, K-O-R-O. That word means turtle's head. I assume almost all of you can figure out the reference. Here's a clipping concerning progress against the disease from the London Daily Mirror, dated November 9, 1967. This article concerns an outbreak in Singapore. The dreaded Koro is on the wane. Doctors claimed yesterday that they are winning the battle against the dreaded disease, which has been linked, in the minds of many men, with eating pork vaccinated against swine fever. Thousands of anxious men have been crowding to the island's hospitals complaining that their sexual organs are shrinking, which is the classic symptom of Koro. This belief has brought a slump in sales at the butcher's shops. But yesterday there were signs that a government campaign against Koro is paying off. The men of Singapore are slowly being convinced that Koro, the disease they fear as a threat to their manhood, is all in the mind. And more pigs are being slaughtered as pork goes back on the dining tables of Singapore, where more than 80% of the 2 million population usually eat it daily. The campaign aimed at persuading people that Koro is imaginary will go on until the disease has been stamped out, says Singapore's Director of Medical Services. A government official said this would take a few more weeks. Thank you so much, Avalon. That was excellent journalistic research. However, I'm relatively certain that the battle against the dread disease Koro goes on to this very day. Topic number three, lost ancient technology. Topic number four, mentally ill or schizophrenic patients as seers or shamans. Topic number five is reptilian royalty, having to do with all kinds of conspiracy theories. And, and topic number six comes directly from the ancient evil gem, uh, demonologist. If you find yourself in the presence of God, you're about to have a really bad day. Well, you know which one I'm going to vote for. <laughs> <laughs> well, JJ, go for right for it. <clears throat> <clears throat> Seems like a good idea to me. So, when I was at Harvard, I had a professor who was Jewish and taught some of the most illuminating classes, I think, that I, I had while I was there. And in one of these classes, he paused, looked at us all, and said, you do know that 
for any of these prophets or for anyone else who ever comes in the presence of God's holiness that you are bound for the worst day that you will ever have in your existence. And we all kind of sat back on our heels thinking about that. And none of us had really contemplated that at that point. And it is something that I have often thought about ever since that class. And it's very true. Even if you think back to Isaiah 6, where you have the seraphim, six wings, six wings for each. And, you know, each calls to the other saying, Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabaoth, you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The description that it gives is that two will cover its face, two will cover its feet, and with two it shall fly. Meaning that even these angels that were purpose-built to exist before the throne, because there are two types of angels, at least in the Hebrew Bible. There are the cherubim, which make up the living throne, and then there are the seraphim, which exist around the throne. We're not even going to get into Revelations and how they merged them all and butchered it. I, I won't even do that. But uh, these angels, which are meant to be in the presence of God, cannot look upon them. They can only cover their face. And what is going to happen to a human that is brought into the presence of God? In almost every situation that I can think of, they had to be purified first in order to even survive that encounter, whether that was through fire or coal or some other manner, that purification was a necessary step to just even make it through that encounter. JJ, is that the reason why Isaiah said take the, the, the angel took the coal and cleansed his lips? That's exactly what. Okay. Okay. That was one of that purification. And in fact, I think I may have mentioned this before. I certainly have on my podcast. But in ancient Phoenician reliefs, seraphim are not depicted as winged, you know, humanoid figures. They are rather fantastical, but in the most ancient of contexts, they are winged fire snakes. And in fact, in every other instance in which you see the word saraf and it's applied into a noun form, it refers to flying snakes that are on fire. So it's not exactly a, uh, a stretch of the imagination to picture that's what these things would have looked like in their earliest of incarnations. Well, just flying burning snakes is going to make for a pretty bad day. That would be accurate. <laughs> but then you picture in the absolute holiness and the sheer magnificence and power of that presence. And it can, I don't think we could ever even begin to imagine such an event. But, I mean, yeah. And so that 
that image has always stuck with me to this day and it's something i've always meant to go back and do some further research on and actually produce an episode but i think this would be at least a decent preamble and i would love to know everyone else's thoughts well we we said in uh, one of our latest episodes that i'm gonna do my best in january and i'm gonna I'm going to ask very nicely for Canon Wills to help me out with this. We were going to discuss those angels that you just talked about being around the throne of God. But one That's thing on that I, ending the curse. Yes. Yeah. And uh, but one of the things I want to throw in there, just uh, just as a side note, when JJ was talking about like the flying snakes, that is what is meant when. Jesus said that we would take up serpents. When he says, yeah, uh, you'll tread on serpents and scorpions and they won't harm you. Well, if you look up the word serpent, uh, the prefix of that is Sarah, yeah. which means angels. So the depiction, I just, I just want to let it be known that the depiction that J.J. just spoke about is 100% true and correct um, some of them do look that way and um, but we think as serpents being nasty snakes or or if we live in some certain places in uh, uh, around the eastern Middle East uh, we can take them up and act foolish with them <laughs> but, but that's not that is not what God is saying that you shall tread on snakes and scorpions or serpents and scorpions. What that is meaning is that those that believe in him and have his authority can tread on them on these fallen angels or on these fallen serpents or Sarah. So cool. I just I just wanted to throw that in there right right quick. Well, what would just, the scorpions represent? I Father Bob, I, JJ. I, well, I think I think you're you're onto something here. Yes, th this would be manifestation of some fallen spirit, of some sort. Uh, I think what we're talking about here is whether or not a person can see God or be in the presence of God. And maybe that is why God sent Jesus Christ to be incarnate as a human being so that we could know God, because it's obvious that none of us can come into the absolute presence of God and really know God on an intimate, in an intimate way because he is so unknowable in that, in that sense. But because Jesus became incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, we can now know God through him. So we can have a relationship with Christ and can have even visions or uh, apparitions of God, of Christ, let's say, where we can at times actually interact in the spirit with Christ, whereas we could not act or interact with the Father due to his very nature. 
uh, even Moses, when he was up on the mountain, and Elijah had the same experience, basically, on the same mountain, really. They could not see the face of God. They could only see him passing by. They could only see the the aura of God. In other words, they could not really see him face to face because a person couldn't, couldn't do that and live. The only way that could ever happen would be if we were totally without sin and total walking in the will of God 100%. Jesus Christ did that. He's the only one that ever did it. And so the relationship we have with God has to be through Jesus Christ. So, J.J., when you're talking about having a bad day, we're, we're talking about before we've died, right? Correct. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I wasn't sure of the context. I'm making sure. So, yeah, no, that makes that, sense. That's a, that is an important context. And one last thing, just to, uh, to correctly identify the Hebrew, saraf is the verb which literally means he burns or to burn if you want to put it within english context and there are no infinitives within uh, most semitic languages and so you've got to put it into the masculine singular in order to get the base form of a verb so saraf means to burn at heart and then sarafim would be the plural noun form. Uh, Serpent is derived from the same exact word. Uh, That is absolutely correct. Um, But that may come more from like the the poison aspect more than anything else. But that's a very common illusion. You have two different types of play going on. You have both the punish side of it and i mean p-u-n not to punish but to, just to make a pun uh which are plays on words and then finally you have allegorical references uh for example let's say take psalm 91 for example the most one of the most famous protection psalms that there is that was written in the second temple period um so it's much later than most of them that appear but you get a lot of references like the arrow that flieth by day that is referencing lilith a night hag who was originally an akkadian deity um but at the same time and you don't really get it so much in english uh which is a shame although there are of course you know great puns in english i think most dad jokes evolve from great puns but uh, in semitic and asiatic languages where you have very short words, then you get a phenomenal amount of fantastic wordplay that goes on. Uh, If you didn't know, in Hebrew, most verbs are composed, uh, they're trilateral. They have three root letters to them. And so you get a lot of uh, fantastic opportunities to make some really amazing puns, so. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. So, aside from biblical characters, do we know anybody who claims to have been in the direct presence of God? Didn't Emanuel Swedenborg 
claim that? He is supposed to be. Yeah, the... Emanuel Swedenborg might have claimed that. I. It seemed to me like sure. his followers always made him much more grand than he made himself. That is true. But, I mean, he is supposed <laughs> to be the, you know, the second Messiah. Is that true? After Christ? Yeah. That's, right. According to the Swedenborgians, yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And there aren't a whole bunch of those guys. There are not. And a lot of them are in, Beth, what, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? Let me ask you a question, or let me ask a question. When I was going through my efforts to become a Jew, I went to a lot of classes and talked to a lot of rabbis. And so we were talking about the Shema, okay, which in English is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Mm-hmm. Okay. And <clears throat> the word Echad is in there, E-H-A-D. And one rabbi that I talked to, and JJ, I'm not putting this forth. This is what I was told. Stated that the word ahad has a much deeper meaning than just one. The meaning that he was talking about was composed of characteristics that humans cannot understand. They can't mentally construct. They cannot put together a picture of God that makes sense. Mm-hmm. simply because these characteristics are so different from what we can experience. We can't experience anything except in the visible wavelengths of light. We can't experience any sounds over about 130 decibels without going deaf. We can't experience what it's like to be underwater. So a lot, of, a lot that humans can't experience. And he was talking about, it is these characteristics that are so outside of our realm of understanding that if they didn't kill us physically, they would certainly destroy us mentally. That's true. Yeah, and um, Echad is really just, um, I think it's Aleph, Chet, Daleth. It just, it literally means one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, and you find this in a lot of other Semitic languages and even prayers, like uh, within the Ethiopic Orthodox Church, the very ending of the most famous opening line is um, um, the one Lord, and it's the same word, uh, Echad. Um so, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that kind of interplay. The the one of the most fascinating aspects to Judaism to me is the free mixing of mysticism into the ordinary, whether it's ruach or life or spirit or wind. There are so many um, uh, different translations for that one word. And how that is embodied and emboldened in every living creature and even inanimate objects as well. Um, And how that mixes in and the spirit of the world, all of that is just beautiful. And I have always found that concept of Echad to be poetic succinct and amazing in its context and yeah i i completely agree with what you put with what you just said what the rabbi had put forth that was rabbi simonson well i think that's just another indication that the only way that god could really communicate himself to man was to become man and he did so through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
if it was not for that, how could we even really know God? I have no other methodology. No? That is it. I... That's a bitter pill for me to swallow. I, in principle, I completely agree with that. But then we're saying that only for the past 2,000 years has there been a method for God, for humanity to commune with God. And considering that they just found archaeological evidence of the oldest wooden structures that have ever been found, and it's 43 times older than we ever thought, um, I think, and I haven't verified this, so don't quote me, but um, these structures were from 476,000 years ago. And only two, the most recent 2,000 years have we had a method for communing with God. That's the part that— No, no, no. You, you, no, I'm not saying that we're having the only way to commune with God. I'm saying the okay. only way to really know God, to see like, God. Like directly. Yes, right. No, I, I think communing with, communicating with God or communing with God is a whole separate thing than what we're talking about. We're talking about seeing God face to face. Exactly. And I, I, I think we may need to look at it this way. Uh, every Lord's Day, we hear these words, remember. Um, Jesus said the first commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And if we're in the season of Lent, we will even hear these words, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. So before Christ, uh, we had the law and the prophets that represented God. And there are those who actually walked with God and, you know, heard God. But to see him never came to pass until Christ started his ministry. And that's when he told his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So I, th I think I think we need to look at that in, in it. it it is it, it's not a too simplistic view, but it's understandable. Before Christ, we had the law and the prophets. Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets. And so, therefore, Christ then says, because of me, you have seen him. So it kind of makes throughout me wonder. History, I was going to say, throughout history, you, you had people that loved God with their own whole heart like, father mike said and who also love their neighbor and so i think we could go back deep into history as jj's suggesting and see that people were communing with god but that's different than seeing god or and and maybe this is why you have so many depictions of god that are some are similar but some are very different throughout history, because people were guessing at or hypothesizing 
things about God that may or may not be true. So what's interesting to me in this, in thinking about it, not focusing on the sight, I I get what you're saying about actually seeing God, but having Jesus here, the apostles are able to directly interact with him, question and answer, you know, have long conversations, walk down the street, see how he interacts with other people. That's much deeper than a prayer life, right? That's much deeper than than anything like that. But it makes me wonder what it's like for a prophet and the prophets of old. What was their interaction with God like? Was it like a conversation with God or was it like uh, like you see... You know, and I'm not drawing a direct correlation, but is it like what you get with a psychic or a medium where you get impressions, you get maybe a vision in your head, you maybe hear something, you maybe hear someone talk to you or, you know, mentally get something projected in. I wonder what that's like for, you know, the old school prophets that were, that's that's how you communed with God back then, right? That was, the prophets were the way you heard God's will. That's the way we commune with God today. We still do that. We still we still have that happen to us. But it's different than seeing God face to face. Give me an example of a modern day prophet like that. When you you're when I compare it to something like <clears throat> you know pre Christ uh prophets that had visions and were looked upon. But what would be a, who would be a current one? Oh, many people in my extended family would say Joseph Smith. <laughs> yes, yes, they would. <laughs> You're correct. I, I had a case where, where that happened to me. I was, I was in Israel in 1995, and it was a very hot day, about 98 degrees. Um, we, we were, there weren't a lot of people that were walking around the city of Capernaum because it was so hot and it was the around noon, right about the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. And most of the people went back to the bus, but I felt drawn to go back to the synagogue in Capernaum. That's where Christ ministered a lot during his ministry. And when i came into the synagogue there was no one else around and it was like a fog suddenly rolled in it was it just got very foggy where i could not see very well i mean it was a a dense fog and then and now whether it was in my mind probably was or audible i'm not sure but god spoke to me about certain things he said as the cities of Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida are desolate today, so are the churches in the denomination that I was a part of. He called out that denomination. I won't say that over the air, but I said, so are so are the churches of that denomination. And he said to me, when you get back, you will meet the man that will answer all of your questions. He will lead you in the right direction. Follow him. And then God gave me a couple of scriptures. I believe it was God speaking to me. 
Now, the fog lifted, and I went back to the bus. And I, I, I actually ran all the way back to the bus because I, I was the last one there. Everybody else was on the bus, and they were wanting to go and eat lunch. So I ran all the way back. I got on the bus, and this one guy, he was from uh, the Latter-day Saints religion. He looked over at me, and he said, uh, you shouldn't be running in this heat. And somebody else said, he's not even sweating. He hadn't even broke out of sweat. And I was not out of breath, and I hadn't sweated or anything. I mean, it was a strange experience. But that's, you, you know, you said, what is an experience where you commune with God? Well, I believe that was a case where I communed with God. God uh, gave me some specific instructions. When I got back, I was working for a small TV station at the time. When I got back, a man came to me and said, uh, we'd like our patriarch, we'd like you to run a, a spot saying our patriarch is going to be at our church this weekend. And I said, well, I don't know anything about your group or who this patriarch is, but invite him to come down and we'll do a three-minute uh, interview on the noon show, no pre-prepared questions. I'll ask him some things, and we'll find out if he's a quack or if he's real. The next week, this man named Archbishop Adler came to our TV station, and I asked him some very hard questions. My wife was doing the cam main camera work at the time because the cameraman had got sick and had to leave suddenly. So my wife had to take over and run the, the, the video. And that night when we got home, she looked at me and said, that man just answered all your questions. You know what that means, don't you? <laughs> and that's the reason I, I'm a priest in the International Communion of the Charismatic Episcopal Church. I had no choice. I had to do what God told me. Now, you, you can you can think I'm or something like that. I'm fully convinced that that actually happened to me. I don't doubt it. What a great experience. That I have no reason at all that that was story. <clears throat> I've had that happen to me on two or three occasions in my life. Uh, the first was when I was born, I was premature and... I was, my lungs were not fully developed. They put me in an incubator. This was in 1950 at Little Company of Mary Hospital, Evergreen Park, Illinois. It was a Roman Catholic hospital. The, the nun that was there in the natal care area sent for a priest. The priest came to do last rites over me because I was dying. I was not able to breathe. As soon as the oil touched my head, my lungs fully expanded and developed, and I started breathing normally. And, they, and the doctors were totally shocked. They took me out of the incubator quickly. My father was standing there watching this through the glass partition. And when the priest came out, he said to the priest, do you think my son's going to live? I'm going to make it? And the priest said, oh, yeah, he's okay now. He's going to grow up and be a priest one day. And my father told me that story the day that he was at my ordination to the priesthood in 1997. Wow. So I've had several experiences like that in my life where I believe God spoke to me, but I didn't see God face to face. I didn't really see anybody, but I 
had direction given to my life. And again, you could you could say, well, was this a physical thing, a psychological thing, both? I don't know. I can't explain it. It's a paranormal experience. You know, that's what we're talking about, right? Paranormal experiences. Absolutely. What I wanted to say, though, David, is that this does happen. People have these types of experiences. Father Mike referred to Bishop Chuck Jones. He's had many experiences like that in his life. Um, we were at a meeting one time where he was praying for a man in my church. And he looked at me and he said, this man has a spirit of death on him. He's going to die if you don't get him immediate medical care. He had no insurance. He had no um no way to he had no transportation no insurance no uh doctor nothing never been never had any kind of uh health care i arranged for him to go to a place in columbus georgia called mercy med where they charge only 30 dollars and they basically do whatever they have to do uh -huh. uh, and i took him down there they sent him immediately to the hospital and he was hospitalized immediately with a major infection. They said if I hadn't brought him to the hospital that day, he might have died within three days. So that was another example of where God was speaking to someone. He spoke to Chuck Jones, and Chuck Jones told me, and then I had to act on what they said. And uh, I was there for all of this, by the way, guys. Yeah, Father nice Mike heard that. And he knows the man I'm talking about. This man had AFib, major heart problems. Right now, his heart is actually functioning pretty much normal at, at uh, better than it has ever in his entire life. Uh, but it, it took several years of medical care and prayer and both, you know, to bring him to this point. Well, I, I guess that, uh, you know, when... When I think about the encounter you described, and you said it was Capernaum, yes. when I when I think about that encounter, I think, well, maybe that's what what the prophets experienced. When when I think of somebody having a an experience, an occasional experience like that in their life, that's one thing, right? Those are beautiful and wonderful experiences. But the prophets, you know, like the of, of old had continual interactions with god you know they were giving guidance based on them and and so i wonder you know is it more experiences of that or do they somehow experience it differently because of that frequent communication with god well isaiah for example was an advisor to four different kings and as you say he had to get the word of the lord for four different people to give them guidance and direction. Sometimes they didn't take it, sometimes they did. But now why he why he was continually given these revelations, we can't explain that. Why mm -hmm. do some people have experiences with God and other people don't? Right. Um, see, there, there's a lot of things we can't explain, we can't really understand. I, in my case, Every time I've had an experience with God, it's because I've been seeking something or at a crucial point in my life where I needed to hear, I needed some kind of direction of where to go. 
Um, I had another experience like that when I moved to Georgia. I was, um, I graduated from the University of Illinois. I applied at 558 different schools to get a teaching job, mostly around the Midwest. And I couldn't, I couldn't get a job anywhere. That was the state of Illinois had given out scholarships to anyone that would go into teaching. They gave out several thousand scholarships and it flooded the market because they all graduated about the same time. And I had no idea what to do. I, I was at a point where I didn't know what to do in my life or at, at this, you know, then things got from went from bad to worse because uh, I had three car wrecks within a year and a half where I, I totaled out three cars and none of them were my fault. I was stopped at a red light one time behind a dump truck and a bus and the dump truck decided to back up and backed up, backed me up into the bus. The, the second one, I was driving on the expressway in a blinding snowstorm and started skidding sideways down the road. And this other guy and I went around and around each other and we both stopped and he looked at me and went, and I looked at him and I went, <laughs> and then a truck came sideways down the road and hit us both. <laughs> so that was, and then Man. the third one, I was at a red light turning into a school where I was uh, going to have a substitute teaching job and a guy who was totally intoxicated. He ran into me from behind, knocked me in through a crowd of kids. I wonder I didn't kill about half a dozen people. Nobody got injured into a utility pole. And there was not anything left of my car at that point. I had to crawl out through the back of the hatchback to get out of the car. The roof had caved in. All the glass was out of the car. It was pancaked. Uh, and so I was at a point I didn't know what to do. I went with a group of friends to an Assembly of God church to a youth meeting. And a man that I never had met before, he was a couple of years older than me, looked at me and said, you're not willing to go where God wants you to go. As soon as you're willing to go where God wants you to go, you'll, you'll have the job you're looking for. I was like, okay. So I said to God, all right, I'm willing to go where you want me to go. That's a Wednesday night. Thursday, I get three phone calls from the state of Georgia offering me a job. Three different places, Cartersville, Baxley, and Thomaston. And so I was being facetious with God, and I said, okay, God, I guess you want me to go to Georgia, but now you got to get me there. I got no car. I got no money. What am I going to do? The next day, on Friday, a man calls me from a car dealership, and he says, I understand you've had a wreck recently. Uh, we'd like you to come and look at what we have and, you know, buy another car from us, that kind of thing. So I said, well, unless I could, I, unless I could put about $20 down and, uh, you, and drive the car away immediately, that's not going to happen because I said, I, 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 I don't have, I don't have any money right now. My insurance settlement hasn't come through yet. And I need to go to Georgia. The guy looked at the guy said, he said, uh, well, we have a showroom model here that has a little mileage on it that we could let you pick up today and 
probably give it to you for about $40 down. So I walked two, two and a half miles to the car dealership, gave him my last $40 and bought the car. And on the way home, I realized I needed to get gas for the car. I needed a bunch of things. I didn't have but about $2 and some change in my in my billfold left and no money in my bank account. So I stopped at a place and bought two lottery tickets, a pick three and a pick four. <laughs> I won both of them. I, I won I won $40 out of the pick four and $20 out of the pick three. That was $60. Now, this is when gas was less than a dollar a gallon, okay? Right. You know, and that got me to Georgia and back. Enough to get you to Georgia. I, I, I got a motel room for the night I was in Georgia for, I think, $12 or something like that, 12 or $13, okay? <laughs> Uh, I took, I took some food with me to eat on the way, you know, cause I, I couldn't go to restaurants. I couldn't find, I, I didn't want to go as far as Baxley, Georgia. I had no idea where that was. The Cartersville job I didn't take because it was only a temporary thing. A woman was pregnant and it was for her, the duration of her pregnancy. So I came to Thomaston and that's where I ended up. That's where father Mike lives now. And I like, it's 18 miles from where I live. and. That's how I got to Georgia. So, again, that was a paranormal experience, you might say. Okay. But that's how I ended up where I am today. Now, it's a bizarre set of circumstances. What I'm saying, David, is maybe the prophets had these kind of needs that God would speak to them or God would do things in their lives to help them meet the need that was there now and in mm -hmm. maybe not just in their lives, but in the life of the nation or right. in the life of the king. <clears throat> Interesting. Now, when you got to Georgia, did God help clear your insurance record? <laughs> Eventually, I did get it straightened out and, and we got the insurance money and I paid for the car. Yeah, <laughs> but it took it took a few weeks because three accidents no in a row. Fault. I don't know if State Farm would still pay cover no. you after that. Oh, they I didn't got have no they fault insurance in those days. So it actually took me close to two months before I got uh, the insurance settlement and got everything sorted out. Yeah. Well, um, the, the question I have in that whole story is who was the person that said as soon as you go where god wants you to be you'll have the job you need who was that yeah it was some guy at this church i don't know it was just a young guy maybe a couple <clears throat> years older than me he wasn't a clergy or anybody like that he was just we were all just in a group praying for one another and praying in the spirit and uh, he he spoke that over me I don't well, know how he knew that I needed a job. I guess God must have shown him. Well, there are a lot of stories, though, of people encountering others who seem to have something amazing and important to say to them right at that moment yeah. that they could not know. I don't know what that is. And they're well, never seen again. And they're never that's, seen again. And to me, right. that feels that's a like gift a of the spirit. 
Yeah, they, mm-hmm. it's called the word of knowledge. Uh, <clears throat> the the um, the Bible talks about that. It's called a word of knowledge. There's a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, discerning spirits. There are different gifts of the spirit that people receive, and it's through the Holy Spirit working in their lives that they get this knowledge. Um, we don't understand how it works exactly. It just does. It's not uncommon in Pentecostal and charismatic circles to see this kind of thing. Now, some of it, you got to be careful because some of this is hyped and false. And, you know, people will say things that aren't from the spirit. But then you have other cases where obviously this person had this knowledge and passed it on and then it's set into motion a whole chain of events what about the idea that uh i mean the first thing that popped into my mind and this is from i'm sure way too many television shows and movies uh but what about some sort of like an angel taking human form and feeding you the little bit of information you need. Think that does that ever happen? I don't know. Wait, I don't wait, I don't see anything prohibiting it from happening from happening. But I don't know. But how would you know? See, we would not know if it was well, you an wouldn't. angelic being, you know. No. No, no, you'd no. never know. Then uh, this could have been in in my case it could have been an angelic being. I would have never known. I think it goes along with uh also the same principle to where even elijah or jeremiah or samuel would speak the word of the lord to anyone the scripture reminds us that the spirit of the lord came upon them right um and so i don't i don't doubt that any whatsoever that there's times to where um the spirit of god will come upon someone however he chooses i mean he's divine he's all sovereign it's his choice but the word will come upon someone and they will speak what needs to be spoken at that specific time um but uh also going back to going back to seeing god face to face i'm i'm interested to hear um since it's old testament I'm interested to hear what JJ has to say about this. What exactly did the high priest of the old covenant have to do to go beyond the veil and offer sacrifices? And see, see that needs to be that. I think that's kind of pointing to the whole question to see God face to face. Well, look at what the priest had to do. Well, and that's honestly one of the mysteries. There was so much that was lost after the destruction of the first temple. There is, you know, God's name is not the four letters that we know of now as a tetragrammaton. It, is, it was composed of 72 letters. 
We don't know what that is. We don't even really know how to pronounce the tetragrammaton. We have what we a reconstruction of it. We think we might know, but JJ, JJ, what is the say that word again? Tetragrammaton. Te- te- yeah. What is the tetragrammaton? Uh, I will spell it. I I don't feel comfortable pronouncing it. It is Yov Hey Vov or Wow Hey. I speak in the Old Tiberian uh, pronunciation of Hebrew. Uh, nothing wrong with the modern Israeli pronunciation, but I, I was taught with Tiberian, and I like the idea of speaking more akin to how ancient hebrew would have been spoken so i've got that along even though it's a heck of a lot more difficult but um but yeah i mean it's where the word jehovah comes from which yeah. was a completely mm-hmm. inaccurate uh pronunciation of the tetragrammaton uh but considering that it was filtered through greek and latin it makes sense as to how it came about um but yeah uh it's but it's one of these words that is supremely disrespectful to pronounce um it's just like saying you know there's a lot of jewish um uh, jewish sects in which do not believe in even saying elohim or el instead they put a k in front of it it's kel or kelohim um so it's just out of respect that i don't ever pronounce it because i i went to school with um a ton of fellow jewish colleagues and you you don't want to actively like that's why i always say bce instead of you know bc and i will never refer to it as the old testament because that is the it just further enforces the super um you know the the replacement theory that a lot of christianity can easily kind of fall into but yeah but that's the tetragrammaton Okay, don't, don't I'm going to. Don't I'm going JJ to, a lot of times use the word Adonai instead of saying the names for God. They do, but even sometimes, like very, um, very traditional groups will even be hesitant to say Adonai, so they'll say Adonai or something similar to that. Right. But yeah, no, it is a very common substituted word. To a Western mind, I find some of that. I'll be honest, a bit silly, but. <clears throat> I really do, but all right. I am as the uh, person who came up with the idea of the rundown. I'm going to exercise executive privilege here and say that we have done a good job of discussing a theological question that we could discuss for the next 500 years. <laughs> yes, we have. Yes, we have. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, you know, the Catholic Church thinks in terms of centuries. Theological questions are generally answered over centuries. So I believe it's a good time to do another spin. I have itchy fingers. <clears throat> okay, here we go. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. We have locked-in syndrome. One, two, cannibalism, ritual cannibalism through warfare as a member of control for actual nutrition. We have magnetic pole shifts. We have, number four, psychic images on walls, floors, etc. Number five, spontaneous human invisibility. And six... More things disappearing, JJ. <laughs> Six uh, savants, Newton, Gould, Sam Johnson, etc. 
minds that are simply beyond the normal measure of man. Total silence. I I vote for psychic images on on things, but and I've got some stuff to say on the last one as well, although it's not lengthy. <clears throat> well, why don't you just go ahead and say it? So, I don't know about Samuel Johnson and some of the other individuals that was mentioned. However, at least in terms of how intellect is currently measured in modern times, the most, the highest IQ that has ever been recorded, does anyone know who that happens to be? I've heard different people. Um it seems like they always talk about an IQ that I'm not even sure they measure somewhere around 200. Somebody told me that was a guy by the name of Michael Birdsong. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, JJ, We're not I, I don't. About the lowest negative number. Oh, no, okay, no. okay, okay. <laughs> no, no. So the the number was 242, and it was a man, English philosopher, politician, by the name of John Stuart Mill. Mm-hmm. And John Stuart Mill was an amazing philosopher, uh, political, well, not really political, kind of political philosopher. Um, he, he, uh, so he was raised by his father, and his father's best friend was Jeremy Bentham, who's the man who created act utilitarianism, which is this kind of compass as to the right way of acting. I didn't say good, I said right. By calculating the outputs of any action that is taken, weigh which one is the best for the greatest number of people, and then do that action. And of course, John Stuart Mill came along and said, can you really do that? Come on. There's no way that you could ever anticipate that a butterfly flapping its right. wings. You can't, you can't possibly would. predict the ramifications of any action. Exactly. And so he proposed rule utilitarianism, which is to establish a set of stated guidelines that would help to direct, but still do so with the benefit of acting in the favor of the greatest number of people. It's very famous. Um, uh, set of uh, philosophies that are primarily used nowadays within Lincoln-Douglas debate. However, he was a famous uh, British suffragist, uh, voted for women's rights within England, and but you know, he was an amazing guy. But the thing I was going to say is that how he got to that point was absolutely bloody horrific. His father showed zero love to him. And, and, and soon as that man could learn, that little boy could learn how to read and write, which was by reported efforts to be around age two or three, he had him studying nonstop. And if he stopped, he was beaten. He was beaten. And so, yeah, he could speak five languages fluently by the age he was what 12 or 15 or something like that but 
what he had to go through to get to that point was horrifying and i knew some professors that wanted to emulate that model and i just with their own children yeah and just smack them i'm like yeah the benefits might be there but you could also just as likely you know raise the next great serial killer because i think you have a much greater chance of raising the next great serial killer exactly well josh josh just mentioned this he said uh most people that uh have high iqs like that have been through some kind of abuse in their childhood is that true well i don't know i really don't know that i don't either i'll tell you this is the the victor show to tell you how weird i am it's not like it should be any big news to anybody but there are lots and lots of six-year-olds who decide you know i want to be a baseball player i want to be a cowboy i want to be a soldier i want to be a uh, a football player, you know, very, very, very reasonable dreams for a six-year-old to be. It was about age six that I figured out, hmm, there are people in the world who spend their lives learning things and using their minds and teaching things to other people. There are people who do that. That's what they do. That's what I want to do. And, and and so I, you know, I've, I've pursued that with the the hope that one day I might, without the beatings and without the uh, no other life, have a mind, you know, something maybe like on the lines of John Stuart Mill. I don't. I, I can't ever have that kind of mind. I'm <clears throat> I'm just right where I can start to see what it takes to have that kind of mind but i can't make that next leap i can't make that next step <laughs> so it's a it's a little frustrating sometimes to realize that i'll never be a a mind along those lines and uh, i've uh so actually when i was a kid i vacillated between either being an artist okay or being a stripper well Look, man, you, 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 no... you deprived the world of <laughs> something utterly astounding, JJ. Um, and horrifying. Magic JJ, I'm, I'm telling you. JJ, man, how at age six did you have the understanding that there were male strippers? I have no, I really don't. I have no idea. But Look, I got to tell you, stri- if this is not paranormal rundown gold right oh, here, man. there is what? no such thing. And I, I'm sorry, JJ. Well, JJ is already said that uh that uh, when 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 we all meet up in jacksonville that i was going to be the the ring guy and he was going to be the one in the <laughs> bikini showing each round <laughs> oh my god i mean thank god i have and have maintained i'm not going to sleep tonight <laughs> one thing that i do have is an astounding ability to visualize and i'm really not going to sleep tonight either <laughs> Is that why blood is currently pouring in the corners of your eye? <laughs> Jay, I got to ask, JJ, what did your parents think of this career choice? Uh, my mom was, uh, she always just looked at me very, very strangely. She's like, artist sounds okay. It's like, a, it had to be like. She uh, bought you some paints and some pencils. Oh, she did. Yeah, she went all in on the artist thing. I'm thinking it's be like Hank Hill looks at Bobby sometimes like 
6 a.m. That boy's already not right. <laughs> you know, I definitely had a screw loose somewhere growing up. I'm telling you. Well, you, JJ, I've never known anyone else who made the decision at six they wanted to be a stripper. So my hat's off to you. Yep. You can check that box off. Who remembers? Uh, Vic, I gotta the ask. Old, yes. I, just, just because of the the topic, the previous topic, not the the stripper topic. Uh, <laughs> I've never wanted to be a stripper. I mean, believe me. <laughs> I don't think any of us really were in the running for that career path to start with. But, um, no, how is it that they actually, I mean, I know you take a test, but how is it that they really measure intelligence? What is it? What is the foundation of determining IQ? That's a really good question, and I can't give you a great answer. I mean, Bob? I know there there are a number of standardized IQ tests. Now, of course, people will say, well, these are culturally based. If you're not a, uh, a WASP, you don't have any chance of scoring high on these tests. To me, it's always seemed like IQ does a decent job of measuring the ability to learn and integrate. The, the innate ability to learn and integrate. And that's, to me, much more important than anything else. So are, are you learning on the fly in the test, or is it... I mean, I know I took an IQ test when I was, like, 10, okay? Mm -hmm. So... Well, you remember the, the test... And it wasn't you, 240. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they'd give you questions like, um, frog is to Rasputin as catfish is to something else okay and and you're supposed well, to that's that's what i was going to say yeah because isn't most of it like comprehension in reasoning effect? yeah comprehension well in in, in reasoning. reading what you have been given and mm -hmm. then in logically connecting those things bob didn't you used to do something like that well actually I'm not sure that the IQ test is really a good measure of one's intellect. I think you hit it right on the head. It was a good measure of maybe your ability to learn at some given point at your in your life. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really measure a lot of the things. For example, it doesn't measure the artistic aspect of your life. It does. It does measure what we're talking about—the paranormal things that might happen in your life. It doesn't measure your spiritual sensitivity. It doesn't measure uh, a lot of the things that, let's say, drive us or motivate us. You know that uh, a lot. A lot of our intellect is motivational. You know, like J.J. said, you could be motivated by somebody beating you or threatening to do bodily harm to you, or you can be motivated by other things. You know, people are the, the most motivated people are usually the most, I guess you might say, the most intelligent people or sure. the people that exhibit the most intelligence. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, when I when I was dealing with substance abuse people for many years. I found that a lot of drug use killed their ambition and their motivation. So whether they were intelligent enough to do certain things, they were not motivated 
to do those things. Mm -hmm. So they never pursued their intelligence. They never pursued uh, challenging their intellect, that sort of thing. So, you know, I'm not sure that the IQ test is really our best way to go. Well, um, I, was... I know that's that's the way we measure intelligence nowadays, but... Well, I've been in, in Mensa and qualify for triple nine and <clears throat> paid my dues one time to be in Mensa and decided, I hate these people. I... <laughs> I need to go. I need, I need to go somewhere else. I, mean, I, I, I want to be anywhere but here. Um, I never even pursued the triple nine stuff. But you're right. I mean, the the simple number of a high IQ. I don't even know what that number is. Where they'll say officially, "You are a genius." What is that number? I don't know. It's ninety seventh percentile. Mince is ninety eight. So. Anything above 97 yeah, is, okay. yeah, is 90, considered yeah, 98th percentile. So, <clears throat> Let me ask a crazy question. I just, okay. There are other kinds? Well, well <laughs> but uh, what's the – oh, I think they just did a whole Netflix series on him. What's his, the serial killer? What was it? Jeffrey, Jeffrey Dahmer? Jeffrey Dahmer. There, did there, he have a very – what he considered to be a very high – Oh, yeah. A lot of serial killers do. The, I mean, I guess the the – the most intelligent would have been Ted Kaczynski, you know, the Unabomber. Mm -hmm. I wonder. I wonder. Ted Ted Bundy was was extremely intelligent. I wonder if there's any connection between. I mean, <clears throat> it, it it just to me it sounds so common that all these serial killers have such a very high IQ. That does not. I can't. I I, I cannot without any human reasoning at all to say that is that is that is not coincidental one of the things that happens when you have <clears throat> it didn't happen to my family because they thought i was an idiot but <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the <laughs> but one of the things that happens with people with extremely high iqs is that very early on in their life they get positive reinforcement along those lines where Hey, look, you don't have to be a decent guy. You don't have to be kind and thoughtful or any of that. You've got a high IQ. That's all that matters. And a lot of these people, being humans, they just incorporate that into their self, their self-image. And boy, did they ever turn out to be a lot of fun to be around. <laughs> so, I was just thinking about our, our conversation about Gage, right? Oh, Gage, and, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, the ability to literally look at things differently people with a super high iq have a perspective and how they put the pieces together that mm -hmm. is different oh yeah and it just seemed odd to me how you could actually accurately measure that right after a certain point after I a mean, certain point i mean I, I guess if i make an analogy you know I, I feel like i've got the ability to juggle six balls okay i can't juggle six balls i can juggle three for a little while there, I could juggle four. But if you're talking intellectually, I can juggle more balls than most people. But Gage could juggle 12, 13, and not even be breaking a sweat. Okay, so th that was <clears throat> that's something that I don't understand. I don't understand how those kind of minds work. I'm not sure anybody really does. Well, all I know is that I 
thoroughly agree with one quotation from Immanuel Kant. Sapere Aroi. It literally means dare to know, but I love the translation that he came up with, which is have the courage to use your own intelligence. Sure. That's cool. I like that. I like that. Well, I'll... Okay, Father Bob, you were looking for a book. I'm assuming that you had something you'd wanted to pull from one of those books. Well, there, there's the intellect. Intellect has, I have a book here called Structure of the Intellect. Uh-huh. Intellect has many facets that we sometimes don't overlook, or we overlook. For example, cognition, mm-hmm. memory, mm-hmm. divergent production, convergent production, ability to evaluate. These are things that are not measured in IQ tests. Absolutely not. <clears throat> and part of our reasoning ability is figurative, right? We, we, symbolic, symbol, symbolism has always been a part of human endeavor, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, JJ could probably talk a lot about this, how symbolism throughout many cultures has been very similar in some respects because the way people see things symbolically is not tied strictly to where they come from or their religion or their background or whatever. There's there's something in our human makeup where we see things symbolically in very similar ways. You have you have other types of, of uh, ways of th- seeing things as well, beside just symbolism. What about what about the the behavioral aspect? Sometimes one behavior will lead to a chain of events. For example, uh, like you you start something, you do something, and that leads to something else. Um, I think from hearing JJ the other day, I can see that your life had a a chain of events that took place. One thing led to another. One of your interests led to another. Another, you know. In other words, uh, you wouldn't have gone as far as you did in certain intellectual pursuits if you hadn't started that first one. And, and created a, a, a chain of behaviors. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm making sense or not. No, the, the, yeah, and I, I completely agree with that. So I'm, I'm just saying, you don't measure these sort of things by IQ. Nope. Well, JJ, you did, though, miss out on an opportunity to make enough money to really reduce your student debt. With me. <laughs> Yeah, that stripper job might have really paid off, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm still paying off my extremely hefty student loans from Harvard. So don't don't mention that again. (laughs) All right, I'm sorry. I I really meant nothing bad by it. It was just a. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I mean, is stripping still out of the picture? Yes. I might have been able to bring in a whole five or six pennies a night. <laughs> never know. <laughs> okay, I'm going to switch we'll back to the topic, original topic, which was, uh, let's see, 
What was psychic it? Psychic images on walls, floors, etc. Okay, I want to start. Does anybody besides myself remember the old TV show that Rod Serling did after The Twilight Zone? It oh. was called Night Gallery. Yep. Yes. Yep. People, you, Dave, you remember? Do you remember Night Gallery? It sounds familiar, but I, I look. Don't. If you if you ever have a weekend where you're you know you've got the flu or something and you're just not going to do anything, go find the old Night Gallery episodes. They're fantastic. They are. <laughs> fantastic. But that was a fairly common theme in the old Night Gallery. Every Saturday night. Every Saturday night, and he had these paintings, and and he'd come out. <clears throat> anyway, he he was great. All right, that was a pretty- so. What, well, what was the premise of the show? Oh, it was it was like the Twilight Zone. It was uh, discrete stories, but he would base them on a painting. There'd be a oh okay painting gotcha. there, and he'd come over and he'd say something like, um, "Well, I, mean, I guess the story I can remember the best is one about a a um, a creature that lived down in a quarry who becomes good friends with this girl, and she just calls it the thing." And the town becomes aware that it's there, and of course they cover it up with rocks. And so she leaves and goes to college, and she comes back later, and she realizes that the thing is still alive down under those rocks. But one of the rocks that's covering the thing suddenly has a face on it with a smile. So uh. the thing is happy that the <laughs> that his that its friend has come back. But, Returned. But that was kind of a common thing. There was so the the story I'm thinking of. It's two sisters who have lived a spinster-type lifestyle. Neither of them have ever married. Neither of them have ever had children. And they've lived together in a big, rambling, generational wealth kind of house. And this one sister dies. And, of course, everybody's upset. And the family moves in like vultures trying to figure out how they can get some of the money. And the silhouette of the dead sister suddenly appears on the wall. It's like a shadow that someone has drawn around. And so they decide, okay, well, let's, let's put new wallpaper up there. Let's paint it. Let's put paneling up. Let's do anything we can do to cover that up. Doesn't matter what they do. Just keeps coming back. <clears throat> and of course they're saying, well, aren't you frightened? And he said, how could I ever be frightened of my sister? But, even though that was a story, there are real-world incidents like this where these images have shown up. And the one I'm thinking about is in Italy, I think. And I can even see the images in my mind. I just can't come up with where that is. But these images suddenly show up on their kitchen floor, and they've done everything they can over a number of years to get rid of these. But they're still there. So that's a not-too-terrible intro. I got a story to tell about something like that. Oh, uh, great. I remember when Josh was, he was probably four or five, maybe. And uh, we lived, uh, Father Bob, that's when we lived out on uh, Peachtree Peach Tree Street out there by close to David Nancy's house. And uh, he was he was plagued. I mean, plagued with nightmares. He refused to go to sleep every night, and I mean to the point where 
daddy would get angry with him. Uh, he said, Dad, it's time to go to bed. I don't want to go to bed. I don't want to go to sleep. Or come in here and sleep with me. And uh, I'm like, my God, what in the world is going on? And then, uh, you know, so I was just in my room doing some study one night on the computer and doing some prayer and stuff like that. And I walked out into the hallway in the house that we, it, it was it was an old house that had the old dark paneling in it. And right beside his room, where it leaded into his doorway, was the demon um, face that had the, you know, the horns coming out of the top of the head that looked like a goat or whatever, you know. Baphomet. Y'all know what I'm talking Yeah. Yeah, Baphomet. You're talking about Baphomet. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I'm like, what is that? And I tried to reason it away. I'd turn around and look back. No, it's still there. And I called my wife in there. I said, what is that right there? She said, that's a demon face. I said, yeah. What was the face made from? It was... It, it was in the wood. It just okay. Mm -hmm. It was it was in the paneling. I okay. mean, it was just the way the paneling was. I mean, my sensibility would be that's just the way the paneling was made. But it was unmistakable, and so I had the house blessed. And uh, and another thing, which which nobody nobody really understood why I was having it blessed. And um, except a couple, but one person that didn't know anything about it was there for it to support this house blessing, so to speak. Uh, one thing that we do, uh, Father Bob does it as well. But when we bless a home, we bless that we bless the outside of the home as well, in the property. And someone walked by the old well, and they just stopped. And I mean they went white as a sheet i'm like okay what's going on here and they said there's been sacrifices made in this well oh and so we dealt with that as well but at any rate to make a long story short i don't discount anything about that because i've seen it in real life this image was on the wall which was prohibiting Josh from having any peace in his life. Well, did the blessing resolve that image? Did the, it help? Yes, it? yes, it did. The image, the image faded. I mean, right after that, into something that I couldn't, I couldn't, you I couldn't, couldn't pick it out the, anymore. The yeah. Baphomet face anymore. I could not discern it anymore. Exactly right. Okay, that's hmm. good. So, That's an amazing story. It is, and uh, but it, but 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 then again, on the flip side of the coin, I'm sorry. Just because you fry a piece of a a, a, a grilled cheese sandwich and you think Jesus's face is on it, all of a sudden, <clears throat> oh, yeah. I draw the line there. But but you, you, I mean, I, I say that just to make light of the whole subject. But but. Uh, I don't discount anything. Well, the the faces that I was talking about, the original faces, were called the Belmez faces, and they're in Spain. <clears throat> and I mean, I've essentially told the story. They appear on the floor, and no matter what they do, 
these faces return. So, obviously, a hard skeptic is simply going to say, look, there's some, either they're put there falsely, like many people assume and claim that Padre Pio did, as far as his stigmata go, or there's simply some chemical process going on here that you don't understand. And I'm not, I'm not hostile to that view. (laughs) I just find the the whole thing interesting. Well, I think it. Well, I think that also takes us back to what we were discussing earlier, from what uh, JJ and Father Bob was saying about signs and symbols. I think so much of our life is tied into that to where we don't even realize how much we depend on signs and symbols. Excuse me, whether it be in the church, for instance, or driving down the street, paying attention to a traffic light. Everything is a sign and symbol. Excuse me. So uh, uh, I think it's more common than we realize it is. But anyway, that's all I got to well, say about it. As long as we still agree that Joseph Campbell was the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity, then I, I think we'll be all right. <laughs> well, so, Vic, what was the story around why those faces were there well, it's, on the floor? It, it, it's, I don't really know. It, um, <clears throat> it, it, it's just I'm aware that around 1971, these faces started appearing. Let's see, located at the Pereira family home at Calariel 5, Belmez de Moraleta, Jean, Andalusia, Spain. Man, that's a long address. The Belmez faces have been responsible for bringing large numbers of sightseers to Belmez. Various faces have supposedly appeared and disappeared at irregular intervals since 1971 and have been frequently photographed by the local newspapers and curious visitors. Many Belmez residents believe that the faces were not made by human hands. Some paranormal investigators believe that it is a photographic phenomenon. Now, that's a good topic, something to talk about there. Subconsciously produced by the deceased former owner of the house, Mary Gomez Camara. Skeptical researchers have performed extensive tests on the faces and believe that they are fabrications, possibly created as part of a hoax. Well, yes, of course. It is suspected that the Pereira family may have perpetrated the hoax for financial gain. Okay. Well, now, here's why I picked the topic, or suggested the topic. When I was a teenager, I took Shaolin Kung Fu for somewhere between five and six years. And one of the stories that I remember being told was of a Shaolin monk going up to a cave and meditating for so long that he left an impression on the cave wall. Now, I've, I've looked it up. It is not the image that I remember, um, but there is the legend of Bodhidharma and his shadow impressed in the Shaolin cave. Now, he's the one who brought uh, some of the Zen Buddhist practices that the Shaolin monk practices today to them from India, I believe. 
but supposedly he went up to this cave for nine years and stared at this wall meditating and left a shadow impression of him on the wall from focusing for that long of a period. Now, I remember seeing an image when I was younger that was like of a faded, like an old thin man with a beard. Uh, but it's not what I see here. So I don't know if I'm mixing two different legends, but that was a thing, right? Meditate in a cave, focus on the wall so intently for years that you leave a literal piece of yourself on it, an impression of it. That's pretty awesome. I it's like that cool. story. Father Bobby, apparently you can go there today. Father Bobby, you got anything to say about that part? No, I've heard those uh, stories from my martial arts training also. Um, there's been a couple of different versions of that, as you said. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't discount that. I mean... Well, the, the only reason I asked is since you got so much history with martial arts, I thought you might have something to throw in there. Well, so we talked in, in I think, our last episode... No, episode before the last, uh, the one with Chris and Dean about uh, quantum physics and affecting it through thought. You know, nine years is a long time to focus on one single thing. And if you can do a test with a quantum number generator where you walk, you sit down in a room, and everybody focuses on odd numbers instead of even numbers, and it starts spitting out more odd numbers than even, and that's just in a very short time frame with a very few people. Think about the intensity of focus that a true practitioner of, of Zen Buddhism does over nine years. That deep, deep focused thought. You could do all potentially take that to a much, much grander scale than just spit out some odd numbers or even numbers. So it seems to me like the the physics might support something like that, um, but I don't know. Does anybody remember a guy named Ted Sirios? Okay. <clears throat> no, but I'm guessing no. he was no joke. Guessing he was what now? No joke. Serious, serious. Come on, man! <laughs> that was a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> oh, you're right. One, give one to Dave. Uh, you t take some, you know. Give me some demerits. I, it just, <laughs> it, me too. <laughs> it, just, it just didn't work at all. I'm seeing, I saw JJ over there, kind of laughing, going, "Man, I've missed something, and I don't know what." <laughs> I'm glad you got it, JJ. Thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. No, I, I appreciate a good dad joke. That was good <laughs> stuff, man. <laughs> so, psychic investigators sometimes are doing very serious investigation, but both people who investigate supposed psychic events and scientists are fairly easily fooled. I mean, James Randi has shown this over and over and over again. He can get a, a group of scientists together very easily fool them as to what they're seeing. Okay, so Ted Sirius was a guy who had a he had what he called the gadget. And it was a little 
it was like a little thing that he held up to his eye. Okay, and he this guy was he was either a long term alcoholic or a long term drug user. He was very weird. But he'd take his little gadget and he'd hold it up to his eye like this and he'd ask somebody to bring a camera up close to the gadget and then he'd do kind of a little mumbo jumbo and he'd go Rawr! or something like that, you know, with with the gadget. And the idea was that he was projecting a photograph onto the film in the camera. Mm. And frequently they would develop the film and there would be photographs on there of, of things other than Ted Sirio's holding this this little gadget thing. So there'd be a, a tower in Venice or there would be some mountain scene somewhere. And he said that's what he was projecting. And I have never, ever found a definitive explanation of what he was doing, of whether he was just a complete fraud, if he was actually doing something. But to me, that seems to be a... If he was genuine, that's a thought-generated image. I I have heard of photography, psychic photography like that before. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen. I, I you know I don't know specifically if this was him or not. I'm looking at the file you sent over. It's not super clear. I don't know. Was he getting paid for this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> are they talking about Ted Sirius? Are they talking about this guy? I, I don't know. I just found the. Oh, okay. That's this is somebody different. Okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like I don't see any towers or anything like that here. This looks like. Uh, yeah, it looked it looked just like mm. uh, insect wings or something. Yeah. That's cool though. Um. Yeah, you gotta wonder what is the the method, and then how would that work with digital? How would that sensors? work with a digital camera? Could you could you do it with a digital camera? Would it be it would be almost like thought generated EVPs, which we talked about before too. Uh, the idea that you know maybe some EVPs or maybe that was big was that a conversation on the rundown or did we just have that privately? Look, I don't know. Uh, I, I did the last trailer trash terrors was about EVPs or origins of EVPs. I, I was. Uh, speculating about how they could come about. Uh, I believe the last discussion we had was after one of the rundowns and we were just, just. So, yeah. so, so the yeah. idea that you could, that an EVP could potentially be the projection of the person capturing the EVP. Yeah, because I, I don't know if that was in your show or not. I, yes, I that, that's a, that's a thought I've always but, had, and it but I mainly came and I from Father Birdsong's that EVP, where the EVP predicts what Father Birdsong is going to say. Okay, so you know, silence, 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 and there, there's this very machine-like, wow, and then right a second and a half later, Father Birdsong says, wow. And it's not the same voice, and it's not the same cadence. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's not, the, it's not Zoom getting out of sync. Well, the one that the the one that freaked me out the most was the one that was a female voice, and then I spoke. I'm not, oh yeah, okay. Was, that was, was that was unmistakable. I mean, even the greatest skeptic in the world could not have thrown that one down. All right, I'm gonna, well, I'm sharing my screen. If you can see, 
Mm-hmm. Um, nothing special, but some of these. Okay, so I'm okay. So this image right here, this is this is Ted Sirios. You can see the look on his face. You can see how much he's concentrating. Uh, he's got his little gadget in his hand, and he's using a, a Polaroid camera. And so you got a lot of pictures like this, you know, of of Ted doing his little gadget focus right. focus thing, focus face, focus face. But then you got some pictures like this. Boy, which, that looks an awful lot like uh, a hotel in Tampa. It sure does. The it looks like a hotel in um, in Galveston too. Um, and then I have a really, I have really a hard time, very hard time with this. Not already on the film. Well, or he's he's got a piece of film in his gadget that he's reflecting light off of, or something. So I suppose it'd probably work with a digital camera if you could get the light into the camera. Yeah, those are really, you know. But this Here's is a very thing. strange thing, and this is one of those things. Okay, here's the gadget. Here we go. Yeah, see, there's the... Oh, is that the gadget? Yeah, that's the gadget. Um, this is one of those things where the the story has stuck around now since... Gosh, I think he was doing this back in the 70s. And it's never been specifically or categorically disproven. Debunked, yeah. Nor has it ever been... categorically proven for some reason the high school library that i went to whoever bought books loved paranormal books and we had gobs and gobs of them in there probably why i'm so weird today but (laughs) but i would read every single one of them and and i remember reading this book specifically written by a guy named eisenbud who was a doctor who very, very definitely believed that Ted Sirius was doing something like that. Yeah, and you know, unless you had the equipment that he used to create it, I don't know if you would... It, it would be so hard to disprove or prove one way or another. <clears throat> but, boy, I mean, that really... I could see psychic images may be showing up on film that were kind of a blur or uh, an impression. These are very, very detailed. Mm-hmm. The one of the car, it's got its shadow, it's got, I mean, it's, it makes me think of the whole, um, the guy who, you know, was was talking through the machine to the other side, and then when he passed, they found the the throat <laughs> voice modulator, yes. you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I got to wonder if there was something like that here. And, you know... I always have... I'm sorry. Well, Pace. I was just going to say, it's it's hard to to think that there are people out there that are, are really scamming. But when I was first doing... Early on in doing investigations, I interviewed a guy about a site we were going to investigate and he had this wealth of knowledge he was a local paranormal investigator there and then after telling me the whole story about what to expect and the site and everything else then he started going on oh hey let me send you some files of this stuff i'm coming up with now in my investigations Mm -hmm. and he clearly was playing with digital photography oh where he was playing with the shutter speed and lights 
and you could tell. And then he was photoshopping it to blur things and everything else. And that software was not uh, as advanced as it is now. So he couldn't do super clear things with it, but you could tell. This guy wanted to be back in the limelight for the stuff that he had done before and the stuff he was doing now, he was clearly making on his own. And it's it's frustrating to see that. Very, very so frustrating. so want to believe, right. you know, just like just like Mulder. I, you know, I want to believe, but sometimes it's just too far. Too far. <laughs> uh, well, there's a concept I've always found pretty interesting is the idea of the accidental psychic. Okay, mm-hmm. so do you remember the movie... Uh, ghost with mm, gosh what's that guy's name Whoopi Goldberg and it and had Patrick Demi, Swayze Demi Moore yeah. I guess <laughs> JJ's, giving, JJ's giving me a scowl it must be one of his favorite movies it was <laughs> a great movie I have to say it was great because JJ doesn't like it uh, no I, I just I can't stand Patrick Swayze that's why I hate that movie <laughs> I am Henry VIII I am Henry VIII I am anyway I, I liked the I liked the movie but Whoopi Goldberg is a a charlatan she's absolutely scamming people you know you'll right. come in and she'll say i'll say things she'll say things like uh well jj you know i sense that uh, you need to move to texas or whatever just giving absolute garbage but she was probably a good cold reader and she had customers well then suddenly one day she can really hear a ghost <laughs> You know, so she never yeah. she never expected that to happen. So sometimes I look at people like Sirius and think, okay, what if he just started this as a, as a scam, and then one day he looks at the film and there's really something there that he didn't put there. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. And you know, where would that come from? I don't. I don't know. Well, on I- the on the other hand, what would happen if a person accidentally got an image on a film once or twice and then decided they wanted to recreate that over and mm-hmm. over and over again and start the scam that way didn't we talk about that with the stigmata the other day How oh sure know? yeah i mean yeah. that's a matter of you hit gold mm-hmm. once or you hit gold twice mm-hmm. you want to hit gold for the rest of your life yeah, yeah well and that's like it was with this guy he had to come up with something new because the whole paranormal phenomena he had experienced before had died down and so now he had to come up with the next new thing i met a patient one time this is a a decent story let me tell you this story it was a he was a musical prodigy composer he could play one of these guys give him a day with any instrument and he would be playing it as well as most people in the world and I met him in a mental hospital. <clears throat> he had gone to whatever the Rice School of Music is, Rice University in Houston. And his story was that he was psychic, but that it was a curse and that it worked in reverse. So he would sit down and he would write a piece of music spend you know weeks and weeks and weeks months and months writing something beautiful some classical or jazz whatever you wrote and then as soon as he finished it <clears throat> some other composer somewhere in the world would <laughs> would publish it would publish that same piece of music 
<laughs> and he had been accused of plagiarism a, a number of times. He had tried everything in the world he could just to write something that wasn't going to be repeated note by note by some other composer somewhere in the world. So he, he said he'd sat down and he, you know, wrote something that's ba vaguely Beethoven-esque. And then he said, all right, well, let me just, let me um, write something like Subotnik. Let me write some Cage. Let me, you know, Philip Glass. <clears throat> let me write something that's so weird that nobody else is going to come up with it. But every time they did. And this was his life. He, this is all he wanted to do. But everything he wrote, somebody else had either already written. So the question he had was, was he taking the music from their mind or was he sending the music from his mind to their mind or were there, was there no connection at all? Just coincidence. But this had messed his life up to the point where when I met him, he was suicidal in a mental hospital. Wow. Well, this happens to me. This guy, Mozart, keeps stealing my stuff. <laughs> I can't I can't come up with anything original because he keeps writing everything that I put down. Uh, it, well, it, it's it's kind of like this idea that we've talked before of once an idea has been thought, right? It starts popping up elsewhere. I mean, you mm -hmm. could apply that principle to it. Maybe he creates this piece of music. Now it's there. Before he publishes it, someone else experiences it through their creative process. You could maybe make that's kind of a stretch, but well, when it, I mean, you're, what you're talking about is, you know, when it's time to railroad, people will railroad. People will railroad. That's right. right. Yeah, that's the when it's time to steal Mozart's work. When it's time to steal Mozart's steal work, it's time to steal Mozart's work. But extremely intelligent, dedicated, persistent people studied Ted Sirius. And a number well, of them came away saying that he was he was genuine. Well, the thing the thing that strikes me the most is just like we were talking about a while ago. We brought up Jeffrey Dahmer mm -hmm. and others that had such a very high IQ. <clears throat> and I'm hearing the same thing now. This guy had such a very high IQ and all this ability, but was in a mental hospital. Oh yes, I mean he uh, this this guy that's was just, that's just strange to me. It's not it, it go to any any mental hospital you'll find far more deeply intelligent people than you will find just average people mm. and and I don't know why I have Someone once said there's a fine line between brilliance and insanity insanity mm-hmm well I don't think most of these people were insane but they Many of them did not have good coping mechanisms. They tended to decompensate rather rapidly. Well, it does make you wonder if what Father Mike brought up earlier, or I think so, uh, was the idea that how many people to get that high intelligence have seriously broken childhoods. Oh, yeah. Serious, serious issues that would lead them to mental trauma later on, no matter how smart. Well, when I when I first started having ch I didn't have children but my wife had children <clears throat> I was friends with Gage and part of the process Gage set me down and he said okay let me tell you how you got to raise these children if you want them to be really outstanding he said you can't show them any love you've got to be a very very hard disciplinarian you have to treat them as if 
they aren't aren't deserving of your love. I mean, I told him to get hosed, but <laughs> but, but that was his real view, and I think he was probably sort of following the John Stuart Mill John Stuart Mill method. That's what it sounds like. And I would bet you that using that method, you would wind up with more highly intelligent people than not. Those who yeah, don't I'll, kill themselves or turn out to be guys who blow up federal buildings. Yeah, I'm not saying that there aren't <laughs> going to be a whole bunch of cracked eggs, right? But yeah. but I, I would bet you that, you know, we have such emotional drives when mm -hmm. we're young. Mm -hmm. And we're so driven to please our parents, to get that love. That oh, yeah. There's all kinds of, you know, hoops you'll jump through for it. But tangentially to all that... I have always wondered how, and this is something that we've posed a lot of questions about back when I was in college and grad school and haven't really thought about too much since, but how many individuals that populate the mental asylums are really not there because of a deficiency in their own brain, but rather due to demonic oppression, obsession, or even possession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I was gonna bring up earlier. I was trying to find the article where it said that a lot of intelligent people went through some sort of abuse, but I found a lot, a sort of a mixture, and uh, a lot of it comes from their IQs being so high that they can't cope and they fall into drugs, alcohol, other addictions, which sends them on a downward spiral and they wind up in mental institutions. Mm, using material things to calm your mind. Okay, we've been going for um, almost two and a half hours. Yeah, do we, we got to wrap it up. Do you want I, to close this now or... Nobody really yeah, wants to talk about. Yeah, we close it now, so I gotta get up early in the morning. I can't talk anybody into talking about African vanishing penis syndrome. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> There's actually a very, very real. It is a fear real thing. Yes, it really is. Amongst well, even just Japanese men, mm -hmm. of something that's very similar to that. Really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This and is I, a cross-cultural thing. Well, I think no. in, 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 in Africa, it, it generally has to do with curses. You know, I thought you, it just had to do with getting old. You've, you, you've, right. you've been cursed to have your, your penis disappear, to shrink, to disappear. Um, I don't know what it exactly it is in Japan, but I would assume something kind of similar, probably. It's not a curse. It's just a fear that mm. it, it could happen someday. That it could just fall off. But oh, in, just just fall off. Yeah, or disappear. Does that happen a lot in Japan? No, no, no it does not. <laughs> At least not that I'm aware of. Something environmental, maybe. Or? See, but the the in, in the African syndrome, the idea is that it will both shrink and it will be retracted up into your abdomen, and once it's fully retracted, then you'll die. Oh, I can understand that part. <laughs> Okay, so so it's so it's not disappearing like you just wake up one morning and 
It's gone. No, it, it's it's, it's, it's a long term psychological fear. And I look, think of you were a a type of person who genuinely believed that was happening to you. You genuinely believe that something was happening to you that you just could not control. Job one time said that which I greatly feared has come upon me. There is um, there is something to that that if we fear something greatly, yes, it may come upon us. We may create it ourselves. That is correct. That's back and, to the Tulpa effect, right? Well, that's that's a that's a very very unpleasant aspect of human psychology is you know for instance anything you're trying to do in life until you get to the point where you're so good at it you just can't fail the more you need to do well especially under pressure the more likely you are to fail Mm -hmm. at least with me true true yeah so you got this self-fulfilling prophecy right Mm -hmm. the idea that you focus on it so much that you actually cause it to come about and you know short short circuiting your own success but i wonder how much of that is not just a a mental gyration but an actual supernatural i i have no you know, question that a fair amount of this is supernatural by intent Right. Well, also that uh, what percentage of humanity walks around with a a low level of oppression all the time? Mm-hmm. And that low level of oppression is waiting there in the wings for an opportunity to cause something bad to happen to you. And of course, if you are deeply hoping for something to go well, what better time to it than then to attack? Mm-hmm. Fear could open up the door to demonic activity, and like you said, you might have a low level of oppression, but then when you are fearful of something, that fear brings about a kind of merging of the the supernatural, the spiritual, with your intellect, your psychological. And it's a combination of the psychological and maybe the spiritual or the demonic or the paranormal, whatever you want to call it. Uh, That's all correct. And St. Yoda wrote a lot about that. (laughs) St. Yoda. (laughs) (laughs) Right before you go under that tree into that dark cave, (laughs) you will only find what you take in with you. Mm, What do you see there? That was good. Who did that? Uh, Mike. (laughs) All right. Well, gentlemen, I think while in a few minutes here, uh, hit the end button. Is there anything that anybody would like to say before I do? Great conversation. As usual. Uh, Father Bob, thank you so much for being here. You are a natural at this, sir. You are a, absolutely. You are an absolute natural at this. And, yep. um, now, when we have guests on, a lot of times they have a podcast or a show or something like that, and we we get if anybody wants to contact them, we'll get contact information. Do you want to do anything like that, or uh, do you have an email? You, I don't want to 
inundate you with you know potentially with stuff that you don't want but well my email's vanguardcec v-a-n-g-u-a-r-d c-e-c at yahoo.com okay so there you have it questions for father bob that'll be the place thank you for listening to the paranormal rundown this is david griffith sadly our super creative editor vic hermanson has been a little under the weather so you are stuck with my smooth corporate telephone recording voice Perhaps Vic wore himself out adding to the Paranormal Rundown list. As of the release of this episode, we are at a grand total of 2,222 topics. For the record, I knew that he couldn't stop until he hit 2,000. Something about that title, the Paranormal 2000, that just sounds right. I suppose that one day we will have to update that to the Paranormal 3000, but... We'll worry about that at a later time. For now, please help us out and like, rate, or review the show. And more importantly, email us feedback. Tell us what you like or don't like about the show. Give Vic more ideas for the list, or just say hello. You can reach us at feedback at paranormalrundown.com. The Paranormal Rundown is a joint production between myself Vic Hermanson, J.J. Johnson, and Father Michael Birdsong. The music you heard tonight was provided by Smart Sound. Any media clips used are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine. Once again, this is David Griffith signing off for the Paranormal Rundown team. We hope your year is off to a fantastic start. And we look forward to talking to you again in a couple of weeks. <laughs>